Thank you, Hallett. Thank you, Abby. You know, I guess when Abby goes off to school, Hallett, you're going to have to find somebody else to sing with. You know, I remember back in the day, you had Ann up here with you, and that was when Abby was about yay high. So with Abby off in college, I don't know, maybe you get Nancy up here, huh? <laughs> oh, Nancy's going to hate me for that one. Good morning. It's good to be with my brothers and sisters in Christ here at TCF this morning. Consider with me this morning as we begin a couple different scenarios. First of all, we have two men who are in the service. Both are capable, they're loyal, they're devoted men committed to doing their jobs. Both were part of the same training regiment, and they were close friends. They've been together for quite a while. Their commanding officer sends both of them out into the field of service, but tells them in advance that though both will serve for a period of time, one will be called upon to give his life in his service for his country, and the other one will not. In our second scenario, we see a couple of guys at a day labor office. You know those jobs where you go and get a job for the day. They're looking for work, and at the start of the work day, they're hired for a fair wage for a full day's work. But as the day goes on, they notice that there's other people being hired to work on the job with them. A couple more guys come on the job just before lunch, a few more about an hour before quitting time. And when the pay is handed out at the end of the day, the first two who were hired were at the end of the line, and they saw that those hired after them, those hired later, even those hired just an hour before quitting time, got a full day's wage. So that raised their expectations that they'd get more. So when they got to the front of the line, those hired first were a little bit disappointed. They get the same amount as those who worked as many as seven hours less than they did. Now, in both scenarios, our first generally gut reaction is that that's not fair. There's something in our human nature that's innately concerned about fairness. It comes naturally to us. Now, the ideas of fairness that come naturally to us are not always sanctified. In other words, our natural ideas of fairness are not necessarily tempered by the Holy Spirit. But our ideas of fairness are not all bad either. We realize that some things are fair and some things are not. Not a one of us hasn't said at some time in our lives, and maybe some of us had said this more than others, that's not fair. We've said that, haven't we? We hear it a lot from our young children, don't we? And because it seems to be such a significant part of our personal sensibilities, I believe there's an important place for this general understanding, this fundamental understanding of what is fair and what's not fair. If it weren't for this sense, for example, that we have about fairness, think about it. It's possible we might not even care about the poor and needy and their plight. We might not care as much for those who are sick. We might not uh, feel compelled to fix things that are clearly inequitable that impact other people. So our innate understanding of fairness may be important to our daily functioning in the world, and it can be a component of our compassion for other people. However, the Word of God sometimes turns this idea on its head in ways that confront us not so much 
our general understanding of fairness for others, but more our understanding of fairness as it applies to me. That idea reminds me, the idea of the fairness and how it applies to me reminds me of a scene in one of Barb and I's favorite 70s TV show, WKRP in Cincinnati. Anybody ever remember that show, WKRP in Cincinnati? Because I worked in radio, I got a big kick out of that show. And one of the characters there um, was a sales guy at the radio station, Herb Tarlick. He was kind of an obnoxious sales type. He wore loud polyester suits. He was generally fairly narcissistic. And one day the staff was informed that the station might be bought by a new owner, and there was a distinct possibility that all the members of the staff would lose their jobs. And so the staff was in the room there, and they were all kind of lamenting that possibility, and Herb steps up, and he steps to the center room, and he says, now, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. How does this affect me? Barb and I can use that line on each other even to this day when we see some narcissism at work, and it never fails to bring a laugh. Most of you probably recognize both the scenarios that I outlined at the beginning as being stories from Scripture. One is a narrative with Jesus, Peter, and John soon after Jesus' resurrection. The other one is a parable that Jesus told his disciple. We're going to look at both of those this morning, but first we're going to look at the story from John chapter 21. If you have your Bibles, you might turn there. We're going to read a passage here in just a moment. The background here is Jesus is reinstating Peter to ministry. You remember Peter denied Jesus after Jesus predicted that he would. Peter denied him three times before Jesus was crucified. And so in this chapter, he asks Peter three times, do you love me? And three times telling him, then feed my sheep, commissioning him for future service. Then Jesus gives after that, what we could very easily classify as a very troubling prophecy. On the one hand, this prophecy says that Peter will glorify God. And on the other hand, we see he's going to be martyred to do this. Speaking to Peter, Jesus says, beginning with verse 18 of John chapter 21, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Just in case we don't get the significance of this, John explains it in the next verse. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Tradition holds that Peter was crucified. He was martyred on the cross. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? This was John we're talking about here. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he wouldn't die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Now, if Tom Buck comes up to me after the service and he says, hey, Bill, what are you doing for lunch today? And I said to Tom, Tom, what is that to you? You'd think that was kind of a rude remark, wouldn't you? What's that to you, Tom? 
I don't think we can classify Jesus as being rude, but I think this is one of the many clear examples that we do see in the New Testament that puts the lie to the idea of Jesus being meek and mild. You know, we have this idea sometimes of Jesus being meek and mild, but I don't know how else to see this rather than as a harsh rebuke to Peter. It's almost so harsh that if we don't consider the entire context and what Jesus was communicating here, which we're going to look at, we might subtitle today's message, Jesus' snotty comeback. I didn't subtitle it that, but we could. So while it was a sharp response to Peter's question, it was sharp with a purpose. It was sharp to make an important point to Peter and to make an important point to us. What is that to you, Jesus said? Let's think about this. Why did this concern Peter? We could speculate and we could say, well, maybe Peter was just curious. We could say that Peter and John were close, so Peter just kind of wondered what's going to happen to his good friend John here. But considering the context, I don't think Peter's question can be considered just a curiosity. First of all, Peter had just been told that he would die a martyr's death. Now, John did say that this death would glorify God, but it still had to be somewhat of a shock to Peter, don't you think? While in the abstract, we can look at this and say, well, hey, it glorifies God to earn a martyr's crown. In practical terms, when we're faced with this ourselves, no one could possibly be excited when they first hear that their destiny included being martyred on a cross. Secondly, Peter had just made a true statement about Jesus. When Jesus asked him before this part of the passage that we read, Peter, do you love me? One of the three times he was asked that, Peter responded, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. So when Peter was looking at John and he asked Jesus what about him, Jesus knew what was in Peter's heart. So if we're watching the scene, we might have thought, why did Jesus jump Peter's case so strongly? Because he knew, Jesus knew what was in Peter's heart. He responded to Peter as a result of what he knew was in his heart. What's that to you? In the vernacular, he might have said, that's really none of your business. If Jesus was Darth Vader, he might have said this. <laughs> Perhaps you think you're being treated unfairly. So we get the idea here. Huh? Charlene liked that one. Matthew Henry writes, Suppose I should design that John should never die. What does that concern thee? It is nothing to thee. When or where or how John must die, I have told thee how thou must die for thy part. It is enough for thee to know that. Follow thou me. That's his paraphrase of what Jesus was saying. Note it is the will of Christ that his disciples should mind their own present duty and not be curious in their inquiries about future events concerning either themselves or others. There are many things we are apt to be solicitous about that are nothing to us. Other people's characters are nothing to us. It is out of our line to judge them. Other people's affairs are nothing to us to intermeddle in. We must quietly work and mind our own business. 
Now, the quote that Matthew Henry references here is Romans 14.4, so we'll read that. That's related to what we're looking at here this morning. It says, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So we learn from this passage in John some key lessons. First, we learn that we're called to one thing. We're called to the same thing that Jesus called Peter to in this part of the passage. As for us, we are to follow Jesus. That's his word to us. You follow me. This is to be wholehearted. This is to be undistracted. Undistracted by how God is using other people. Undistracted by how God is blessing other people. Now, Scripture also says we rejoice with those who rejoice, but it says we rejoice with them. It doesn't say that we envy them or we're jealous of them. We also learn from this passage that there are many subjects of religion on which a vain and impertinent curiosity is exercised. All such curiosity Jesus here reproves. We learn that Jesus will take care of all of his true disciples and that we should not be unduly solicitous about them. And we learn that we should go forward to whatever he calls us to, persecution or death not envying the lot of any other man, and anxious only to do the will of God. We also learn that Jesus claims divine sovereignty here. Think about it. Sovereignty over Peter's life, sovereignty over John's life. This relates clearly to what Jim Grinnell, not Jesus, Jim Grinnell spoke about last week in his excellent message on God's sovereignty. Notice what Jesus said in verse 22 of John chapter 21. Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come. In other words, Jesus could do with John whatever he wanted to do if I want him to remain. He claimed absolute sovereignty over John's life. He was Lord of life and death. Remember when this exchange took place, it was just days after Jesus died and then rose from the dead, conquering sin, conquering the grave, conquering death. He had just proved his sovereignty over death. So John's life belonged to Jesus to do with as whatever he pleased. So did Peter's, and so do our lives. And we know, as Jim noted last week, that as God does what he wants with us, it's for his glory and for our good. We see that in John's statement that Peter's death would, in fact, glorify God. However, the challenge for Peter as it often is for us, is seeing how suffering can be for our good. We struggle with that a little bit more, don't we? Another thing he's telling Peter here, in a sense, is to be single-minded. In other words, don't worry about what you can't fully understand. Your job is to follow me. Implicit in that idea is also the idea that because he's God, because he's sovereign, and all that entails, we can trust him. We can trust him, whether we can see the outcome of his plans and purposes or not. We can trust him. You know what blinders are? Blinders are a piece of horse tack, and it restricts the horse and its ability to see this vision to the rear and in some cases to the side, depending on what kind of blinder it is. They're usually made of leather or plastic cups. They're placed on either side of the horse's eyes, attached to a bridle or maybe to an independent hood. 
Many racehorse trainers believe that these blinders keep the horse focused on what's in front of him, encouraging him to pay attention to the race other than to distractions such as crowds around them. Additionally, blinders are commonly seen on driving horses to keep them from being distracted or spooked, especially on crowded city street when you see a horse pulling a cart. You almost always see blinders on them. So Jesus essentially said to Peter, put blinders on. Don't worry about what's around you. Focus on me, Jesus said. He said, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. When we have blinders on, we don't notice so much God's dealing with someone else. When we're following Jesus with blinders on, we're looking only at him. We don't notice that God's dealing with someone else, perhaps in a different way than he's dealing with me. So Jesus says this simply, follow me. Finney wrote, now Christ is no longer here in human flesh and therefore following him cannot have precisely that physical sense. Yet now, no less than then, it implies that you obey his revealed will and do the things that please him. So we have this tendency, this natural inclination to seek fairness. And as we've noticed, this tendency isn't a bad thing necessarily, but it's not always sanctified, especially when fairness is related to how it impacts me personally, and even more so when fairness requires something difficult of me and not someone else. Arthur Pink wrote that it was to correct this tendency in Peter that the Lord spoke. His business was to attend to his own duty, fulfill his own course, and leave the future of others in the hands of God. What good would it do, Peter, to know whether John was to live a long life or a short one, to die a violent death or a natural one? This is a warning to us to not be curious about the decrees of God concerning others. Follow me is also his word to us. We are to follow him as leader of his people, as shepherd of his flock, as exemplar for his saints, as Lord of all. So we see these ideas of fundamental fairness and how our response to this impacts us personally. We see it in other places in Scripture as well, including a parable in Matthew chapter 20. We'll take a few minutes to read this parable to highlight some ideas in this. Matthew chapter 20, beginning with verse 1. A familiar parable. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into the vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour, and he did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, 
saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me to work for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first, and the first last. So here we see the question of justice versus generosity addressed. Of course, in this case, the landowner is God, and God owns everything. God doesn't just own the vineyard in this parable. He owns everything. That includes you. That includes me. That includes everything around us. That includes all of our possessions. Just as surely as God owns everything, he has the right to be generous with what he owns. Let's notice some lessons in this parable. We learn how the last become first. We learn that fairness is not the ultimate test or the highest value. And we've noticed uh, that we have built into this fundamental idea of fairness that we have, which can compel us to be compassionate, but in the kingdom of God, there's sometimes a sort of reversal that takes place. Those who started work at the beginning of the day, working a full day, and then got paid the same as those who only worked an hour, complained about the fairness of this. But the landowner pointed out to them that he was absolutely fair. He paid them what they agreed to. They agreed to work for a denarius, and they got a denarius. That was a fair wage for a day's work. We learn how the last become first through free grace. Jesus illustrates by a parable something of the reversals that often occur in the kingdom of God. Who gets paid first in this parable is crucial. It's only because the last received a full day's wage that those first hired, expect to get more than they bargained for. And they grumble against the owner because he had been generous to others and merely just to them. So these workers hired first agreed to what was fair at the beginning of the day, but when the landowner paid them what they agreed to and was generous to those who worked less, they said, that's unfair. That's just not fair. But the landowner wasn't cheating anyone. Doesn't he have a right to do what he wants with his own possessions. After all, it's his money. Now, in the parable, it's a rhetorical question, but it shows clearly that God's gifts are his and his alone to decide what to do with them, to decide how they're used, how and when and to whom they're given. Why? Simply because they belong to him. They are given not because they are earned, but they are given because he is generous. He is gracious. It's about his grace, which is by definition unearned. So the last will be first and the first last. A disciple of Jesus should not measure his or her worth by comparing it with the accomplishments and sacrifices of others, but should focus on serving from a heart of gratitude in response to God's grace. I think in both The passage in John, which we read at the outset, and in this parable we read just a moment ago, we see our human nature very clearly illustrated. We see, at the very least, curiosity on the part of Peter 
about John's future. And probably more than simple curiosity, because of Jesus' very strong rebuke, what is that to you? Jesus affirmed in the passage in John that he has a right to do whatever he pleases, and that whatever he pleases will bring glory to him. And then in the parable of the workers, we see the landowner representing God, essentially saying the same thing. I'm the Lord, and you're not. I can do what I want. It belongs to me. And we see what's basically jealousy at work, envy in the workers in the vineyard. It's hard for us to say if Peter was actually envious of John, thinking that John would not be called to die a martyr's death, and he would be. But it's also not hard for us to imagine that short of Jesus' sharp response to Peter, Peter could have had his curiosity turn to envy. Matthew Henry wrote this, which I found extremely convicting. Envy is unlikeness to God, who is good, and doeth good, and delighteth in doing good. It is an opposition and contradiction to God. It is a dislike of his proceedings and a displeasure at what he does and is pleased with. It is a direct violation of both the two great commandments at once, both that of love to God, in whose will we should acquiesce, and love to our neighbor in whose welfare we should rejoice. Thus man's badness takes occasion from God's goodness to be more exceedingly sinful. Think about that for a moment. Man's badness takes occasion from God's goodness to be more exceedingly sinful. I don't know about you, I find that incredibly convicting, that we can take the grace the graciousness, the blessings of God that he gives to someone else and allow it to turn to envy in our hearts. It's not hard to imagine Peter being envious because we're so much like Peter and we're so much like those workers in the vineyard who worked all day and then grumbled because they got paid the same as those who did less work. They got paid the same. It's not hard to imagine because we've had the same feelings. Let's break it down into the more practical ideas. We work hard at keeping the house clean and our spouse doesn't. But we feel convicted about it if we don't do those things. And our spouse seems okay with not doing anything. We volunteer at important church ministries or outreaches. And some other slackers don't. But we can't escape volunteering because we'd feel guilty about it. But it doesn't seem to cause any grief to those slackers. Or how about this? We live an exemplary Christian life. We tithe from our meager income. We serve the Lord wholeheartedly, yet we struggle financially. But Joe Christian next door, or worse yet, Jane Christian, across the aisle from us in church, gets away with all sorts of things that I would consider unchristian behavior. And she never seems to have any problems with money. She has more than she needs, probably doesn't even tithe. We could go on and on, but you get the idea, don't you? We can all think of things like this. We can think of things that we have experienced ourselves where we've had some level of resentment or envy because God seems to allow others an easier path to walk than we have had. Now, without even dealing with the idea that we don't know all that Joe Christian does and gives, 
Okay, that's another message all by itself. But without even dealing with the idea, Jesus has the same response for our resentment, our comparing of our lives to others, our envy, or even if it's just simple curiosity about why these inequalities exist. These things that challenge our innate sense of unfairness. His word to us, what's that to you? As for you, follow me. As for you, follow me. That's his word to us. His word is, I'm God and you're not. I can do what I want with things that belong to me. Now, in closing, I want to read an insert that you have in your bulletin. It reflects the biblical ideas we've been exploring this morning. Some of you may recognize this because Gordon printed this as a, as a little tract uh, several years ago. Um, I found that this was actually written by a Wesleyan Methodist minister and evangelist named G.D. Watson in the 1800s. And it really relates to all the things that we're looking at this morning. So if you don't have a bulletin and you don't have this to read along, you can read along on the screen as I read this in closing. It's called Others May, You Cannot. If God has called you to be truly like Jesus in all your spirit, he will draw you into a life of crucifixion and humility. He will put on you such demands of obedience that you will not be allowed to follow other Christians. In many ways, he seems to let other good people do things he will not let you do. Others who seem to be very religious and useful may push themselves, pull wires, and scheme to carry out their plans, but you cannot. If you attempt it, you will meet with such failure and rebuke from the Lord as to make you sorely penitent. Others can brag about themselves, their work, their successes, their writings, but the Holy Spirit will not allow you to do any such thing. If you begin to do so, he will lead you into some deep mortification that will make you despise yourself and all your good works. Others will be allowed to succeed in making great sums of money or having a legacy left to them or in having luxuries. But God may supply you only on a day-to-day basis because he wants you to have something far better than gold, a helpless dependence on him and his unseen treasury. The Lord may let others be honored and put forward while keeping you hidden in obscurity because he wants to produce some choice, fragrant fruit for his coming glory, which can only be produced in the shade. God may let others be great, but keep you small. He will let others do a work for him and get the credit, but he will make you work and toil without knowing how much you are doing. Then to make your work still more precious, he will let others get the credit for the work which you have done. This to teach you the message of the cross, humility, and something of the value of being cloaked with his nature. The Holy Spirit will put a strict watch on you and with a jealous love rebuke you for careless words and feeling or for wasting your time which other Christians never seem to be distressed over. So make up your mind that God is an infinite sovereign and has a right to do as he pleases with his own and that he may not explain to you a thousand things which may puzzle your reason in his dealings with you. God will take you at your word. If you absolutely sell yourself to be his slave, he will wrap you up in a jealous love and let other people say and do many things that you cannot. Settle it forever. You are to deal directly with the Holy Spirit. 
He is to have the privilege of tying your tongue or chaining your hand or closing your eyes in ways which others are not dealt with. However, know this great secret of the kingdom. When you are so completely possessed with the living God that you are in your secret heart pleased and delighted over this peculiar, personal, private, jealous guardianship and management of the Holy Spirit over your life, you will have found the vestibule of heaven, the high calling of God. Can't we relate to some of these things? Can't we really understand this idea of fairness and how we struggle with it? But we can also understand Jesus' words to Peter are his words to us. What's that to you? As for you, follow me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you love us enough to mold us and shape us into the image and likeness of Christ. We thank you that you love us enough, Father, to allow us to experience things that we look around and see that other people don't experience, to allow us to witness people having good things in their lives where we struggle with hard things. But Lord, we know that this is because of your love for us. We know that this is for your glory. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd help us to submit. You'd help us, Father, to bow our knee to you. You'd help us, Father, to heed your words to Peter as being words to us. Follow me. As for you, follow me. Help us to put blinders on, Heavenly Father. Help us to put blinders on and not worry about how you're dealing with other people, but only to turn our eyes fully and completely on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and to follow him. We thank you, Father. We thank you that even though this is not an easy road, that your Holy Spirit promised to be with us, that you promised to never leave us or forsake us, and you promised to strengthen us and empower us to do the things you've given us to do. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.